hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this community-minded island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Carl Hampson. Now, if you know Carl, like I know Carl, then you're going to know him as that guy you've seen driving around the island in a 1920s convertible vehicle. Well, today we're going to get to hear Carl talk about his love of old cars along with so much else. This interview is actually going to be longer than previous interviews I've done. And the reason for that is because prior to doing this interview with Carl, I'd never really had an extended conversation with him. I just had a lot of people tell me, you got to talk to Carl, you got to talk to Carl Hampson. So I got in touch with him. And during a phone conversation, he suggested I come down to his property and check out his barn, where his old cars are stored now and his old shop used to be, because he suggested it would be a better interview if I did that. And Carl was absolutely right. (laughs) So while he was showing me around and telling me different aspects of his life, it became very apparent that an hour was not going to be enough to capture all these stories. And I told him we were going to take our time and make sure that we got the stories down. And uh, there's some really interesting stuff in this interview, such as Carl's time living in New Zealand, how he created his own business on the island. He talks about his involvement with the Medicine Beach Conservancy. And he goes into great detail explaining how the community hall came into creation. Really a lot of fascinating and amazing details that he's discussed in this interview. And, you know, I've been thinking about a word to describe how I feel about this interview. And the best word I can come up with is honored. I feel really honored to have uh, heard these stories and to have had a chance to ask him questions and to record it down for people to listen to. So I can guarantee you're going to get a lot out of this one. There's so much Pender history in this interview. So that's it for me. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Carl Hampson. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Yep. Right on. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here. How's uh, how's your day been so far? Um, good. Good. Yeah. Got to get up and every morning and feed the sheep, and um, then uh, get stuck into other chores. In this case, it was still cleaning up the wind damage from the storm on uh, December 20th. Yeah. Well, we're we're actually doing this interview at uh, 10 a.m. in the morning. So, what uh, you've been putting a lot of work in before? Yeah, now? yeah. I, I've been chainsawing and stuff already. Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, start off with the first traditional question that we get to on this podcast, and that is, uh, what brought you to Pender Island? Uh, it was 19 March 1982. I was uh, a single dad living in Abbotsford with two kids, two teenagers. And um, I had a girlfriend at the time who was friends with the then owners of Corbett House, which was a bed and breakfast. So she um, phoned me from here, from Pender, and said, why don't you come over for the weekend? And uh, I did. 
And um, I woke up and got there at night, woke up in the morning, looked out the window and thought, I'm home. I could see from the window, there was a, a house not far away, it had a for sale sign on it. And I said, boy, that's for sale. So it turned out that the lady who ran the B&B uh, was uh, Wendy Nielsen, uh, Dr. Nielsen's uh, wife, was selling real estate. So I put an offer in on that house that day, but uh, it belonged to the Mollison family, and old Captain Mollison was actually dying of terminal cancer in the hospital. So the family did not want to entertain any offers. But Wendy Nielsen had the bit in her teeth now, so she started to show me other places. And uh, she showed me one on Hooson Road, which um, I put an offer on, and it was accepted. Then I got back to Abbotsford, and I think I'm crazy. I work in Steveston, and I'm buying a house on Pender Island, and I can't afford it. So I phoned back to Wendy. I said, no, I, I can't do this. It's crazy, and I, I can't afford it. And she said, well, what can you, how much can you pay a month? And I said, 600 at that time, interest rates were 18%. So she said, I'll, I'll get back to you in five minutes. She comes back and says, the vendor will carry it at 8%. Wow. And that makes your payments uh, 594 or something like that. So I went for it. Okay. And then I had to I commute back to Steveston every day for two years on the ferry. So my principal residence was uh, the ferry <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Sure. Well, what were the ferries like in those days? It would... uh, the, the one that came here that serviced uh, Tawasin was the old um, Queen of Sydney, uh, long since scrapped. I think it was, last I heard, it was sitting in the Appraiser River near Mission. And there was uh, two boats the same, the Queen of Sydney and Queen of Tawasin. So they were much smaller than uh, boats that service the, that run now. Interesting that they had uh, direct reversing engines. So they had no gearboxes. So when they're coming into dock, they had to shut the engines off, uh, restart them in reverse rotation. And so they would run that for a few seconds trying to slow down, and then they'd have to go ahead a little bit more. So they had to keep on stopping and starting the engines all the time as it uh, is approaching docks. So sometimes it was a pretty good bump when it didn't work right. Wow. That's interesting. So it took a long time for those ferries to dock, I guess. Um, wasn't that bad. Once they got used to it, it was wasn't bad. You know. Anyway, that those boats are long gone. Okay. All right. So in 1982, and you make a, a, a rash decision. You'd say to uh, just basically up and buy a house on the island and yeah. uh, move here because you, you said you felt as if you were home. Well, the we're living in Abbotsford. We had a little place in the country, quite close to. Abbotsford Airport, and um, every time I, I, I drive down the, our road, I see more stakes in the ground. The city was growing out of control, basically, and it's certainly the case now. I mean, it was at, when I moved there in early 70s, it was um, a very rural community and very safe and quiet, and that was disappearing fast. So I'd also... One of the reasons that I, I liked uh, Pender Island so much is that I had spent several years in the 60s in New Zealand and um, missed that country hugely. And uh, I felt that Pender Island was um, getting pretty close to the lifestyle that I really appreciated in New Zealand. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's beautiful here as well and, and rural and safe. But lots of good things about it. Okay. Well, you and I both have a connection to New Zealand that we're going to touch on a little bit later, which I'm really excited to talk about. But I want to hear about what uh, the first couple of years were like, uh, 1982 to, I guess, 84, when you're commuting back and forth and first uh, becoming part of the community. How were those first couple of years? Uh, it was kind of difficult. I had two teenage kids, so I tried to get home every night just to keep a lid on things. My daughter was going to school on um, in Salt Spring on the water taxi, and uh, Paul was... I uh, decided to go to Parklands, so he would take the ferry every morning. Uh, the old uh, Vesuvius Queen, which um, is again long gone, he'd take that into uh, Parklands, and then they would hitchhike or whatever to get into Parklands School from the ferry terminal. It was a bit difficult to, you know, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I remember I I'd, I'd come in, you know, get off the ferry at be close to ten o'clock at night. And it'd be middle of winter and raining. And I find that the kids had swiped my truck from the parking lot, right? There's no payphone down there, no cell phones in those days. So I'd have to walk home on Amy's Road in the dark, trying not to walk into trees or fall into the ditches, and get home and find the kids sitting there watching TV. Did you guys forget something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't, so sorry, but it happened several times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And you had to walk all the way from the ferry to Hooson Road. Yeah. Whoa. In wintertime at night. Okay. You gave him some shit when you got home, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, 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 Paul would come off school, and um, there was no bus that picked up the kids from, from the ferry terminal, right? Oh, okay. So, anyway, so he'd just say, well, there's Dad's truck. And, of course, the keys are always in it, so... <laughs> they'd help themselves right oh man okay all right so it wasn't they were joyriding they actually just wanted to get home themselves but they forgot yeah, to and they turn just, around and get you yeah all right <laughs> okay i wasn't laughing at the time but. <laughs> you can laugh about it now yeah yeah so uh two teenage kids and uh you're commuting back and forth and what made you decide to live here full-time how did that wind up working out well um i decided to start my own business so I did that in, I believe we incorporated in uh, 1984. And I bought some used machine tools from my previous employer. I continued to work for them under on contract, doing product development for them. So I hired one of the guys who worked for me uh, back in Steveston. Uh, he came to Pender Island as well. And uh, he's passed away now, unfortunately. So we started up making parts and doing uh, for my other former employer, as well as doing uh, product development work and prototyping and things like that. So then it gradually grew from that. Okay. So you started your own business on the island to help you not have to commute back and forth to exactly. Steve's yeah. I, I guess before we get to that, maybe if you just want to let uh, myself and the uh, listeners know what, uh, what kind of work exactly you were doing uh, on the mainland. I was product development manager for um, I joined them as just a small startup company, about 20-some employees, and we were building a quite simple, basic uh, packaging machinery, case erectors and sealers. And some were uh, automatic, some were semi-automatic, but they're all quite small and simple. Uh, that was the concept that they based everything on. And um, I was responsible for developing their, their uh, case erector, which they're still making. And it got to be... Bigger than I liked. 
um, I'd been moving my whole life to smaller and smaller companies. I worked for big multinationals for many years before that, uh, not doing packaging, but uh, primarily in, uh, in the food business, meat plants in New Zealand, uh, and then uh, Canada Packers, and when they were planted in Edmonton, and from there I went to Burns Foods in Calgary. I always tried to go to a smaller, smaller situation. There's no security in a big company. You're actually far less secure with a big company than you are with a small one, in my opinion, because uh, big companies, you're just a number. You know, they just close a plant because they feel like it, you know. Sure. And um, there's no sentiment in big companies. And uh, their only obligation is to make money. Uh, employees don't really count that much, in my opinion. That's what I've seen. Okay. So observing that, you consciously made the choice to go leapfrog to smaller and smaller companies yes. because then you are recognized as a human being and not as a number. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense, for sure. So you had a, a background in, in uh, packaging design and machinery that was that was... Well, what really started it all off was when I was in uh, New Zealand. And um, my first job was uh, with an aluminium extrusion company. I say aluminium because it was in New Zealand. Here we say aluminum. And um, in those days in New Zealand, anybody's prepared to do anything could get a job. There was They were desperately short of, of labor. So I actually got a job as a machinist, though I didn't even know what a machine tool was. They uh, they put me on a milling machine in a, a dye shop making dyes, extrusion dyes, very complex work. And I learned a lot there. Um, most of the other employees were, in those days, were uh, mostly Brit, expat Brits. Everybody in that shop pretty much had worked for Vickers or Rolls-Royce or one of these other you know companies making aircraft engines during the war and stuff like this, right? So they had a huge skill level and experience and very happy to pass it on. And I did that for a while and then decided I could make more money on my own. So I went to scrub cutting <laughs> with chainsaw. Uh, I could make um, five pounds a day doing that. So that was better money than I was making as a machinist. It was very hard work. And often you couldn't work because of the weather and stuff. So, But this time, uh, Paul was on the scene with my son. I went to the local meatworks and uh, asked for a job and they could give me a job in the office because I had some university and stuff. And uh, I'd only been there for about six weeks, and I was c called into the the boss's office, and uh, the, the chief clerk. We say clerk, but they say clerk in that country. And he said, how'd you like to take on a work study? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, here's, here's a plane ticket. Apply down to head office in Wellington meet with uh, our head office engineering people there, and uh, they'll explain all what's entailed. And if you want to take that on, we'll send you to college to get the necessary uh, qualifications. So I did. I, the school was down in Wellington. They either flew me home every weekend or once in a while train, or they'd uh, my wife could come down and join me. So... They're very good employers, excellent. And, and sadly, their company no longer exists. But So work-study is actually it's called industrial engineering these days. Work-study is an English term. And it's basically it's the, the study of processes 
with a view to making them more efficient. So you look for duplication, unnecessary steps, all things like this, right? And so in some cases, it involved um, timing operations with stopwatches and stuff like this, and then analyzing it and seeing how can we simplify it. So I was eventually doing that uh, back at this factory, and then that's what I was doing for um, uh, Burns Foods in Calgary as well. That's interesting. It sounds like a really pivotal moment in your life that being asked to uh, to go to school. And being... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just uh, suddenly, you know, I'm 21 at the time, I think, maybe 22. Can't remember exactly. And, you know, my first job when I got back, I had a million dollar budget when I got back to the place, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not all by myself, but I mean, I, I'm responsible for certain elements of a huge project, right? Sure. That was a million dollars in the 70s? Yeah. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. So that was a lot of money, right? <laughs> and, and especially in New Zealand, where, you know, you could buy, well, I bought a house there, and it was um, five bedroom, about two blocks from the beach, had four fireplaces in it, a nice like, corner lot, and um, lovely old um, heritage-style house, you know, big verandas and things on it. That was six thousand dollars. Wow! Right? Yeah. Okay. That's uh. That's, I can't even process that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so I mean, uh, so a dollar was worth something. I mean, the um, well, uh, a loaf of bread was I think four cents. Um, pound of butter was eight cents. Right. Yeah, and you're doing a million-dollar project. So, yeah, that puts it in perspective a little bit right. more, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Before we uh, leave New Zealand here, maybe we should just talk about that a little bit. How did you wind up getting to New Zealand? What made you leave Canada and then uh, originally go to New Zealand? Um, I was walking down the um, street in Vancouver uh, with my fiancé, and uh, we saw this Thomas Cook travel agency, and there was a picture of uh, Milford Sound in New Zealand, and um, we said, let's get married and go to New Zealand. How old were you at this point? Um, I was 20. I had to get my parents' permission to get married because you had to be at least at 21. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. All right. So yeah. so they gave you their blessing and then yeah. off to New Zealand you guys yeah. went. Yeah. So we left in March. We got married on uh, New Year's Day, 1966. Yeah. Well, that's pretty romantic, Carl. Well, my grandmother was married New Year's Day. Oh, Okay. Okay, nice. Well, I mean, like, especially the part of like going to a different country and doing yeah. that as well, too. Well, we had some friends there. The family had friends there. We took the or the uh, Orsova down, the P and O liner, and, um, and so these uh, this this doctor and his wife, this doctor used to work for my dad, and um, so they met us there and kind of got us got our feet in the ground. Spent about a week or so with them. Bought a vehicle and figured out how to drive in the wrong side of the road, and and off we set. Right? Okay. When we uh, when we spoke the other day, you talked a little bit about your uh, your trip down there, and I'd like to hear that a little bit again as well too. How did how did you get to New Zealand in nineteen sixty six? Yeah. Well, it was again, of course, a ship. I can't remember what it cost. It wasn't all that much. In those days, uh, air travel was much more difficult than it is today. So it took about, I think, 11 days, I think, to get down there. We, we had to stop over in, um, in Honolulu and in Fiji and then Auckland. The ships in those days just wasn't like a cruise liner. They, just, they were transporting people from one place to another, right? And um, 
we were, of course, in tourist class. Uh, we had about one-third of the boat compared to first class and uh, two-thirds of the people. But the average age was somewhere, I would guess, about 22. And um, bars stayed open 24-7. At least there was a bar open anytime. You know? Anytime. Yeah, and uh, I remember um, a martini cost eight cents. Not that I drink martinis, but that's a, you know some idea what it was. I remember as we were pulling out of Vancouver and going underneath the Lionsgate Bridge, there was another guy beside me. I guess he'd just been divorced. And he said, he was seeing the bar prices? He said, I can stay smacked all the way to Honolulu for five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Right on. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was, we had a lot of fun. I remember there was one guy, at the time I'd been working at a pulp mill in uh, Port Mellon on Sunshine Coast. That's, so I, I left that job to go to New Zealand. And uh, there was one of the guys from the pulp mill was actually on the same boat, taking an extended holiday. And he was quite a character, and he, we'd only been out, you know, in the water for maybe a couple of days still in the North Pacific. They had these signs by the swimming pool indicating the water temperature, and um, temperature said 48 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So George went up and reversed the letters. <laughs> so it said 84. Come so, on in, the water's so, warm. So people ran and jumped in the water and, and they came up pretty quick. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Right on. So you, you got to New Zealand, you had some family there, you're newly married, and then uh, soon after that, uh, your son Paul is born. Yeah. And you love the country. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, what made you wind up leaving New Zealand? Well, I'd taken another job. My a boss, or former boss, had taken another position with a corrugated uh, box company uh, called United Empire Box, or UEB. And um, he sort of took me along with him. He said, um, can't tell you much, but you should buy this paper on this day and look at the help wanted. So they're looking for industrial engineer. Oh, okay. All right. And I knew it was him that posted the ad, right? <laughs> so uh, I applied and was hired away from my previous company. And they're um, moving to Auckland. So we had to we had to sell a house and, and stuff and then look to buy another one in Auckland area. And uh, because of that process, we were actually living in motel at the company's expense. So I sent my wife back home. But this time, you could fly home. And uh, so, you know, after being there for five or so years, so we had two the two kids, my wife, and they flew back to um, Vancouver uh, via three or four stops in those days, fuel. And then after a couple of weeks, she wrote a, I got a letter in the mail, said, um, well, I think I don't want to go back. I want to stay in Vancouver, so or in Canada anyway. So I decided I had to tell my brand-new boss that I'm uh, sorry, I'm going back to Canada. So I wasn't happy about it, but it all worked out in the end. For sure. And so uh, just to finish that section off, how many years did you live in New Zealand for? Five. Five. Okay. All right. I mentioned earlier we have a bit of a shared uh, love of that country. My wife and I spent uh, nine months uh, traveling throughout uh, New Zealand. We hitchhiked from the north to the south and back up to the north again and yeah. saw almost every nook and cranny of it and loved it. It was, a, it was an amazing, amazing place. 
really uh really beautiful country i hope we'll yeah. go back there someday soon but yeah. uh you've been back numerous times since but yes. uh and the, the reason for that is because the uh the business that you developed on the island here on uh, pender island and i guess maybe we can lead back into that again so 1984 you incorporated a business that you said yes and yeah. then um sort of gradually completely severed ties with my old employer back in steveston and uh the um, established sort of a sales network with um, other salespeople who had worked for the other company also were selling some of our stuff. And um, we wind up uh, developing an automatic case packer, uh, which we sold a great many of them. In the last 20 years, I guess, we've, we've had uh, one that was uh, been very, very successful, uh, particularly in the wine and spirits industry. So we've got them in, you know, like packing whiskey for Shibis, White and Mackay, a Bailey's in Dublin, several others, and a lot of um, automotive fluids and stuff like this, similar similar things, uh, household cleaners. And um, we've got several dozen machines into the UK. Then we got quite a few in Australia, New Zealand, in the wine industry there. We also get, we got involved in pharmaceuticals, companies like Pfizer and people like us were buying our stuff. We had a pretty good run with it, right? And um, the, I had many employees were with me for like for 25 years or so. And um, I just recently uh, handed over the, the company to um, a couple of the key employees. And they've uh, relocated, or they've established premises in Sydney. And um, they took some of the inventory and the machine tools, some of the machine tools and most of the relevant inventory with them. So I've, I got my shop back so I can now I can fill it full of old cars. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get to the cars in a second here, but I, I just want to uh, talk a little bit more about this business because uh, you invited me to over to your barn a few days ago to have a little pre-interview before we did this. And you showed me some videos of the case packing machines that you and your company helped to develop. So just to give people a little bit uh, clearer of an idea here, what I saw from the video was that there was these uh, fairly elaborate machines that packaged individual items into boxes and uh you were asked by companies different companies and you mentioned uh, specifically uh alcohol and spirit companies to create the machines to pack the items is that that's correct yes well we kind of had to have it first is we developed this machine actually the first first one of this of this last series uh went into canberra foods in um Lethbridge was packing vegetable oil and then we kept refining it and then but then you know our, we had we already sold a lot of machines of different styles of a, a previous version so we had a pretty good network of contacts and so you know then people would come to us and say well we can use one of those so but we would everyone was quoted and sometimes you know we'd have to customize it to a certain extent and the size of the bottle the line speed fragility, what's in the bottles. It wasn't necessarily always liquor. It could be like uh, bleach and stuff like this. So you'd have to worry about spills and what, what's the effect on the machine, like uh, on your bearings and your seals and things oh. like this, right? And your electronic sensors and stuff like this. You know, you got to consider the environment the machine's going to be working in. And gradually, we sort of developed one that was a bit more bulletproof. And, you know, you could, didn't have to redesign the thing every time. We were unique in that we 
the conventional wisdom is to pick up bottles and put them in a box. We assemble the bottles and then erect the case above it and then pull a case down over top of the bottles. So rather than moving 40 pounds, we're, we're moving four, right? Just, and then the bottles advance through. So we would take, uh, might as well say bottles again, the, um, as they come out of the labeler, one at a time, up to about 12000 an hour. Then we'd organize them into rows and then separate them off into batches, all, all pretty much continuously. Uh, so we had a dozen or a 24 or six, whatever the thing called for. And we would um, pull a case. We had provision for inserting uh, partitions as well, particularly in the, in the liquor business. Then we would open the box up from a, a six-foot case magazine and we'd pull the cases down over the product and then advance it, fold the flaps uh, partially, apply a hot melt adhesive, and then seal the box and kick it out. So this whole thing was accomplished. And the actual machine itself was about 13 feet long. Okay. Right, and a bit less than a meter wide. So they could fit into, to make it compact, you could fit into other older installations because we were about a quarter the size of the competition. You mean your machines were a quarter of the size of the competition? Yeah. Okay. Normally, they have separate machines doing all these things. Oh, okay. We did it all in one. Were you the the head designer on these? Yes. Okay. Yes, I, I, was, I was responsible. I've always been responsible for the concept, uh, identifying the need and doing the conceptual thing, uh, decide what it was going to look like and how it was going to work. And then... But there was um, a bunch of us worked on the actual details, like Sam Boyd, uh, Kerry Bath. Um, other people were um, specialized in the electronic side of it, all the control systems. Um, and you had some people did most of their time doing like a welding and stuff like this. Uh, but most everybody could do everything, pretty much, right? So nobody was really... Everybody participated in making these things, and it wasn't a, a regimented setup at all. You know, because uh, whoever felt able to and could do it was welcome to go for it. And how many people did you employ on the islands? The most I ever had was about twelve. In the end, we were doing just as much work with about six or seven. All right, because I had you know these people had been with me for a long time; they knew what they were doing and. And it got so that uh, we were, um, when we started off establishing a company, it was a 24-7, uh, like 12-hour days. Right? Not 24-7, but it was seven days a week and usually 12-hour days. Wow, really? And so this is just the creation of the, the Just device. getting it all going and trying to, you know, and then eventually we got good at it. And so we actually, the last 10 years, I guess, we just worked a four-day weeks. So everybody had Friday off. Okay. Except me. <laughs> the boss can't take Friday off. No. No. Well, well you got to deal with uh, issues, emails and stuff like this. You know, you can't just not be there. Right. When someone's trying to get a hold of you, you know, so. And so once these machines were completed, then you or someone else would go and deliver it yep. to where it needed to go to in different parts of the world, as you mentioned before, and then set it up. Yes. Customer usually would get it on site. We would have it delivered our prices were delivered and installed because we were on remote location there was no penalty to the customer and no unknown right if we'd said delivery extra and you said where are these guys coming from right? 
<laughs> but then they said that that's the all-in price. Okay. Including a training and spare parts. So we included a spares kit. We included the training and the price because if they don't order the spares and then some like a sensor failed or something like this and the machine is halfway around the world, they're kind of stuck and sure. it makes us look bad. Sure, yeah. So it was easier to just include like um, about $5,000 worth of spare parts and they don't have an option and say include spares. So they never questioned that. They were also, it was always good. You know, boxes full of everything we thought might stop the machine, you know, and uh, valves, sensors, uh, pneumatic cylinders, uh, electronic components, stuff they would not necessarily be able to get off the shelf in their own neighborhood. So that was always included. But then we would go, as you say, um, we'd go there and we'd get the machine running, organize a training time, uh, both classroom and on the machines, teaching them how to change one size to another, configurations, uh, troubleshooting, basic maintenance, how to look after them. And um, we generally allowed about five days for that. And, we, and of course, I mean, we'd also built into the price so that covered the airfare and the guy's time. You did a number of these trips along oh, yeah. the years. Yeah, I had dozens. I can't remember how many. But, was that a fun part of it, going over and doing that? Or was it? Uh, yeah, you, generally it was. Sometimes something would go sideways and someone's phoning and we need someone here. We're having, all this, we're having problems. And usually it was because they completely ignored the training. Or, <laughs> or they'd got all new people. Sometimes you like some companies we worked with in the UK in particular uh, works very seasonal. One that comes to mind, they made frozen tarts for Christmas, right? And so they would start winding up in uh, August and cranking all this stuff out to put in all the stores. Yeah. And then come like what December twentieth or so, shut her down. Shut her down, and nothing happens. Then until next August. Sure. And it could be so, all new employees. It's all new employees. Yeah, right? okay. And yeah. in, in this case, uh, all the employees were from Poland, pretty much. And um, I guess that'll be different now with this Brexit. I don't know where they're going to get the people to do the work. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it's it's interesting that this business existed on the island because I'm friends with Sammy Boyd and he was a previous interview on the podcast. And he uh, he actually said, you've got to talk to Carl Hampson. You've got to interview Carl Hampson. But it's kind of amazing because Sam worked for you for uh, about 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. More or less. Uh, he started as a student when he was going to Brentwood College. Then he went off to Carleton University and studied industrial design. Then he came back and worked both on the floor and in the office. And he and I did an installation in um, in Bailey's in Dublin. I took him with me to do that. Oh, right on. Okay. Was that a good trip? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had met some really interesting people. And Sam, of course, is very personable. So, you know, he'd wind up playing golf with the executives of the company, stuff like that, right? So. Yeah, I'm sure they loved him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. But it's kind of remarkable to think that this uh, this business existed on the island and it employed a number of people. And you had uh, 25 plus years of creating these machines that are shipped around the world and now in different places around the world, uh, all from your, uh, your shop on Pender Island here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. You know, the... People couldn't understand why we weren't like in Surrey somewhere in a in some rental concrete box, and I said we're not in Surrey because we can't afford to be in Surrey. 
we're on Pender Allen because we can afford not to be in Surrey. Beautiful. Right. So yeah. the, and it worked out fine and our customers loved it because in most cases, customers would come and uh, inspect the machines. We generally wanted them to come and uh, do a, they call it a pre-delivery inspection, a PDI. Okay. So they would go through, see the machine running. We'd had them on test here with uh, bottles going through and uh, cartons and gluing and everything else. So uh, they could see the machine running and go over various features with them. So they knew what they were getting. So they'd be happy when it arrived. They already had seen it and approved it. So they all set foot on Pender Island and... all lots of them, uh, many came back for holidays. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. They just loved it. You know, they couldn't believe that... I mean, it, it was pretty interesting. I mean, the um, when we, we started off in, in my garage on Hooson Road, I guess you could call it a... It would hold four cars if you had, if they were all small cars. Wasn't that... And we were crammed into there, you know. And um, I remember um, meeting some guy off the ferry... And um, I was probably driving my 29 Hudson, and uh, the uh, guy kept looking around, and he's used to, he's suspecting some industrial complex. <laughs> and, you know, um, we often came through uh, Amy's Road, which is kind of particularly rural. Yeah, on rugged. Pender, right? It's a rugged, rugged road. Rugged, yeah. And um, he'd keep saying, where's the factory? Where's, where's you know? And then uh, he just thinking i'm i'm dead he said i've sent i've i've spent all this money and I, and and i'm dead you know and then then he opened the door in the shop and there's his machine yeah and the relief you know <laughs> kind of wondering what <laughs> it um cuz uh, we we never advertised and it was just all word of mouth from uh, in in the industry you know so we did have a website eventually, but uh, which Sam helped us with. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, okay, well let's let's uh, move into talking about cars here now because you said that now that you've uh, you've let go of the business and you are able to store your vehicles in the uh, the shop that I got to see the other day. That was really cool. But you have a love of uh, Hudson cars. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess mainly because uh, I saw my first one. Just after we finally uh, settled down in a small, small town in New Zealand, and there was this 1928 Essex just up the road, and Essex cars were built by Hudson. And I bought it off a couple of Maori kids, and uh, equivalent to $25, I think it was. You know, the engine was um, was shot. They managed to blow it up. So I had to find another engine and get it going and stuff. So I had to learn a lot in a hurry. And then I um, was told about a, a 29 Hudson. It was uh, in a nearby town, actually in New Plymouth. And um, I managed to get my hands on that. I borrowed it for the first couple of years and did all this work on it. And then I managed to talk the guy into selling it to me. And um, I still have that car. It's in the family still. That's, um, that's one that Paul has now. And then I collected several others in that same time period, as well as a couple other English cars, things like this. But when I came back to Canada, I got rid of everything except the 29 Hudson and the 23 Hudson. And I'm still working on the 23 Hudson. I might, hoping it'll have it on the road this summer. It's almost ready for paint now, so. Almost ready for paint, okay. Well, I ignored the cars completely 
for probably close to 25 years. Oh, really? I had to work on the business. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? And it wasn't until actually things, business can start to run itself where I could be away for, you know, a lot of, a lot of my travels, I was away a long time, you know, sometimes two, three, four weeks doing installations and things like this, plus some sales calls. So the guys were able to run the business by themselves, you know, everything, everything just went click, click. So I was able to start going back into paying attention to the cars again. Okay. And so for people listening who have never seen a Hudson vehicle before, can you describe what they look like? Well, they made them from 1909 to 1954. So they obviously changed. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, most of my cars are all from the 20s period. So I guess um, similar to what you would see on the Untouchables with Elliot Ness. Okay. Quite a few of them are open cars, like... Um, well, you'd, they call them convertibles today, but they called them touring cars in those days and, and or coupes. As the time went on, you know, they got more streamlined along with everybody else. So my son has two later later ones. He's got a, a blue 46 pickup you've probably seen around the island. And then he's just recently picked up a 1951 a Hudson Coupe, which is uh, basically similar to the a Hornet's. I saw that one at your shop a couple of days ago. I can't wait to see that on the road. That is a really sleek, yeah, awesome looking car. Yeah, and it goes like stink too. Yeah, it's, right. Yeah, yeah, they were very good. Hudsons were always good performers, you know. And uh, I got quite a few of the early Essexes now. I've got uh, three that are all running and everything. And um, I'm picking up another one this coming weekend. So I'm going to go down to Oregon and get that. Then I'm probably going to say that's enough. Okay, so how many is that going to wind up being total that you're going to Well, have? between my son and I, there's about 10. You know, some I have. I have all the Essexes. He has some of his own and some we share. Like uh, we share the 25 Hudson and the uh, 28 Hudson Coupe. And uh, I have all the Essexes. And then he has um, the 29 Hudson that we bought from New Zealand which uh, I gave I gave to him on his 25th birthday because he'd been riding in that car since he was a baby, you know, so. You said he actually came home from the hospital yeah, in that car. Yeah, yeah, That's amazing. So the the car he got a ride home in the hospital from, you gave to him on his 25th birthday. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a great gift. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's um, that's his, and he has these other, the 46 and the and 51 are, are his. So we work together on him and, um, it's something we do together and we really get a lot of pleasure out both of us right on so we do a lot of these road trips and things like this and going to big meets and things you know we've been like to meets down in California and in Colorado and places like that we don't take cars to those because it's just too far to drive now we got the 51 we might be taking that to some of these Okay, so you go to car shows and you just see the other vehicles that people have restored and check them out. Yeah, well, it's usually it's usually in the Hudson Club, you know. But we also go to swap meets, you know, and uh, these various meets. Like there's one in Portland we usually go to. That's in first weekend in April. And then there's you know there's big swap meets in like in uh, Saanich. So in that in that case, it's all, all kind of makes of cars. It's all just it's all car nuts. Of course, and what's going to happen when we have to have to finally admit that we can't be driving these things? Anymore, <laughs> right. So, um, might as well do it while you can, I guess. Sure. 
Okay. Well, when uh, you had me come over and check out the uh, the cars in your uh, shop in the uh, the barn there, now that you have that space open up to you, you uh, there's a lot of history with that uh, barn that I want to get into right now. So first of all, maybe let's just lead into this. When did you build that barn? I believe I bought that property in uh, 1992. And I believe it was 94 or 95 that we actually built that barn. Okay. And when you say we built that barn, uh, so yourself and... Uh... Well, Mike Barnes actually was the main guy who built it. Okay. I designed it, right? And uh, at the time, we're working at, from, from Hooshin Road. Like one of the engineers who was working for me did all the load evaluations and stuff like this. So we knew, you know, we wa- I wanted something that I could put 80 pounds a square foot upstairs. Wow, 80 pounds a square foot? You yeah, need to- yeah. Holy, okay, all right. That's got to be engineered uh, quite... Well, it was just a matter <laughs> of sizing everything. Okay. Because uh, I thought it was, you know, I thought eventually it'll be back to a barn. So if I fill it full of hay, and I got 16 feet deep of, of hay bales in there, I'm going to need that. Then, so we found the logs locally. Actually, it was uh, the main logs that are the main part of the structure. We got all that from Gordy Henshaw. And the um, <laughs> at the time, uh, Ron Henshaw was going to uh, Emily Carr. So we used, the, Gordy used the proceeds from selling me these trees to help pay Ron's tuition at Emily Carr. So there's a connection there. Interesting. But, but Mike Barnes, um, Kelly Irving, Tell Deckel, Quite a few people worked, you know, on, on building that, that thing up. Uh, when, when it was going up, I was working in Australia for the last bit. So remember we had getting phone calls and trying to decide what color to make the roof and stuff like this. So I, I, I know I was working in Sydney, Australia at the time that was going up. Okay. So, and the barn yeah. goes up and at that time on the island, this is the mid to late 90s, that there's no community hall at that point. So your barn held a lot of community events. As soon as we got it finished, we decided to have a big dance to celebrate that the thing was done, right? So it was in uh, September and um, we decided to have an old-fashioned barn dance and advertised it and got um, an outfit called a special delivery, a bluegrass band from Victoria to uh, play for us. The um, idea was to have a fundraiser for a medicine beach. We just decided to take on that project as the, the conservancy had. So we thought everything we can do. So the, everybody pitched in uh, decorating. I remember we had like a fall theme. So we had like big bunches of corn stalks and stuff like this. We had corn in the cob for sale. Uh, various conservancy women were helping out with running various booths. We had a fire pit outside uh, that the fire department operated because it was fire season, but they were there to help us out. It was kind of funny because we epoxy coated the floor. So it looked like it was wet. It was just beautiful, right? And the driveway was kind of sandy. And we thought, well, we'd, we're worried about dust. So we got, I think it was Highways did it for us. They they sprayed some water on it. What happened then is that everybody walked in with damp sand stuck to the bottoms of their shoes. No, oh, no. And they're all dancing in there. And that was the end of the a glossy floor. <laughs> it was done in one night. <laughs> everybody was, had some sandpaper on their shoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, it was great. We had, uh, you know, the, the bar upstairs, various groups contributed, like um, the real estate company ran the bar. I remember that was, at the time, that was Windermere Realty, which uh, became Pender Island Realty, and which is now Dockside. They ran the bar for us. Um, Okanagan Springs donated the beer and all the cups and stuff. So it was a great night, and um, we raised about $19,000 Wow! that night. Yeah. Okay, and so this was a, uh, a night to celebrate the barn being finished and then all, to also contribute money to uh, the Medicine Beach uh, Conservancy. Yes. Okay. I want to get back into the Medicine Beach Conservancy uh, issue for sure, but I uh, just want to uh, see what happened with the community events and how that eventually evolved into the community hall being built. So after that first event that you had, it's my understanding that you had more community events in your barn? We generally had the dance every year for several years. Okay. Always about the same time of year in uh, uh, September, which meant that there's there's almost always locals, which kind of is what we were sort of trying to cater to. We're not trying to exclude anybody, but it just, it was... It's kind of uh, end of summer, we get the island back, right? Right, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. No. Um, you know, you, you get so you, you know everybody in the, on, on the ferry again. Yeah. Um, and I guess because we started off there, because that's when he finished the building. It was in September. But also the upstairs area was used by small music ensembles. Um, I think uh, the theater was up there a couple of times, you know, um, Solstice Theater. Various groups would use it, you know, and I was quite happy that, anyway, they decided that, um, you know, we didn't have a hall at the time. The hall association had, uh, when they built the school, current school, the uh, gymnasium was partially assigned to the for hall use. So the kitchen and stuff that's in there now was always kind of a hall property. But um, it was a pretty big barn, and we, you can only use it when the, when the kids weren't using it. So there have been various attempts to get a hall going in various properties, and um, they always seemed to be stalled one thing or another. So I approached Pira and um, offered them the three acres that uh, where the hall is now. I'm sorry, what is Pira, so people know? Uh, Pira is it's a mouthful. Pender Island Agricultural and Recreational Hall Association. Okay, all right, thank that's, you. That, that owns the New to You building, uh, the epicenter, the hall, and the library property. So it's kind of an umbrella organization. that, that, that The haulers are main, they spend most of their energy, I guess, on hall issues. But, okay. Um, they, but they own the uh, Ocrelone Center, which is where the old school, which is now the New to You and uh, the library and the epicenter. Okay. So you approached them about donating some property. Yes. I offered, I said if they wanted to, they could um, have that, that corner where the hall is now, my place, because it wasn't really of any use to me. It was the opposite end of the farm from where I was focusing my most of my energies. And so they accepted that. And um, they were still kind of spinning their wheels. So a bunch of us, about eight people, my wife at the time, Sally, and myself, and uh, Brent and Judy Marsden, uh, Joan Ellie Donahue, uh, Brad and Lynn McCochran, formed this group, an informal group, and we met every Wednesday, about 7 o'clock in the morning, 
and um, started to work on the building design and um, getting all that in place. Mike Barnes, who built my shop, was also part of that group. He was responsible for a great deal of the actual structural design. We had to get it engineered, of course, but it was all, that's how it, that came about. And uh, it was Mike Barnes was responsible for getting the structure actually up, uh, the erection of all the big logs and everything else. That was all done by Mike. And a bunch of other volunteers. Like, I mean, we had a sawmill on site. We uh, milled up the logs that we, where we had to clear the building site because it was quite heavily treed. So we milled all that up. Again, lots and lots of volunteers. I definitely want to spend a little bit of time talking about the community hall because uh, it's a place that most of us go to, and, <laughs> and it's a very important uh, part of the island. So let's uh, get into this a little bit more about the construction. And so there was an impromptu group that began with eight people talking about the design and trying to get the ball rolling on this. And then um, an aspect I want to touch on, if not now, if, if not later than now, is the uh, raising of the money for the hall because money needs to be raised to uh, to build it. Yes. Yeah. So maybe let's just talk about that a little bit, about uh, how you guys came up with the money to build the hall. Well, we were all busy building the hall and dealing with the nuts and bolts and, and the nails and stuff, right? So I approached uh, Bill Hansen, who um, had just retired from Salish Construction. I buttonholed him and asked him if he'd take on the fundraising, and he agreed to do that. So he made it his life's work for many, many months and um, uh, sort of dredged up money from places I never would have thought of, like the Vancouver Foundation and, you know, things like this. Plus, we were selling coffee mugs, T-shirts, sweatshirts, um, having various events, including more dances at my place, right? That was for all fundraising. So... I think the total cost was 780000 if I remember right. And um, that was all raised here. Well, we had help, like, from uh, Pira. Um, we had a kiosk at the Driftwood every weekend selling stuff and accepting donations and things like this. So it just, we made a real effort to, you know, get this all happening. And everybody pulled together. You know, it was, uh, the whole island was behind it, you know, making it happen. Excellent. And the time frame for this again, this was in the late 90s? I would think so, yeah. I actually, I, I'd have to look at my files. I, I believe it was, yeah, probably late. I would guess it would be late 90s. Okay. You know, that, somewhere in that neighborhood. I, I, I can't tell you for sure. That's okay. No worries. Um, in terms of the, the donating, I thought this would be funny to bring it because I was talking to Brent Marsden last week and he was telling a story about going into somebody's house just a couple weeks ago and there was an old calendar on the wall that was part of the fundraising oh, yeah, yeah. for the hall. And Brent told this hilarious story about uh, this calendar where some uh, Pender Island gentlemen appeared in. Maybe if you just want to uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, fundraising calendar. Yeah, uh, some... Buddy had the great idea that, um, you know, like, because the firefighters had done this, right? Not on Pender, but like, we heard of fire departments having all these guys, you know, these muscle-bound guys wearing little or nothing um, as calendars, posters. So we decided we'd take this on as well. So um, it was pretty funny. I know I've got one of me, and all I got is a hat in a very strategic location. 
the uh, it was a lot, it was fun, and uh, they weren't all taken at once. I mean, it would, a photographer would organize us one at a time, sort of thing to get these pictures taken. So, so basically, it was some people who were working on the construction, all all Pender Island yeah. uh, men, in uh, wearing little to nothing. Yes, actually, and uh, just having things like you say strategically placed in front of them, like a chainsaw yeah. 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 for one person. Brent Marsden was telling a story about he was posing for this up on a ladder with uh, only wearing a tool belt. Yeah, <laughs> on a Sunday morning when uh, church traffic was driving by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can- <laughs> Yeah, and John Bradley just got a chainsaw, right? Remember that? Yeah. So. Yeah, and he said the calendars were being sold for, I think it was like $30 a calendar? I can't, I can't remember. remember, but anyway, it, it raised money. Yep. I mean, we were... We'd do anything to make money. Right? <laughs> uh, anything within reason. Within reason, yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for sure. So it took a lot of coming together, and like a lot of people worked on this. Uh, the first interview I did was with uh, Kelly Irvin, and he talked a little bit about working on the community hall, and uh, that was a really positive thing for him that he mentioned in that. But uh, yeah, it sounded as if uh, a lot of people worked really hard on making this happen. One of the things that was really, I thought, was... One of the most beautiful parts of making that thing is the totem poles in the front. And um, we had a First Nations guy living on the island. He's passed away now, by Victor Reese. So it was undertaken to have the women of the island carve those totem poles under his tutelage. Remember, we started off and we had to make the tools first. So we had to make all the carving ads. Right? So... I, I did some of it in my shop. I remember I used my plasma cutter to cut up car springs, leaf springs, to make the ads blades and then put an edge on them. We had to be, and uh, we used uh, cedar branches for the uh, handles. They're all lashed, made in the old-fashioned way. The, the, the hall was up already when they were doing this, this carving, but there's a lot of ritual involved, and... They'd be working outside in the yard in the sun. And uh, these various women are all carving, working away at this. And then uh, when the day was done, they would um, have to pick these totem poles up with on sticks that are carried. So they marked them like you'd carry a coffin, except the poles are underneath it. Like So they're walking along. And they would put um, cedar boughs on top of the half-finished carving. And they'd walk it up the ramp into the upstairs where it would wait till next week's session, right? Wow. And it was really quite a, a thing to watch that. That's kind of remarkable that you guys built your own tools to do that. Yeah. I had never heard that before. Was that a prerequisite to doing the carvings or was that... Um, well, the whole thing is quite spiritual. So that was part of that. Okay. And sorry, the gentleman's name who initiated this, who doesn't live... Victor who's, Reese. Victor Reese. Yes. He okay. was a carver. He used to do a lot of masks and things. But um, he passed away at a relatively young age, uh, 10 years ago, I guess. That's the story in those polls. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and uh, talk to people like... Um, I guess there was probably 20, 30 women worked on it. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. And a uh, person to talk to about that would be um, Doreen Ball. Doreen Ball, okay. Yeah, because, um, well, Chuck worked with us on the building, right? That's her husband, right? But um, Doreen, I remember her being one of the real workers on that thing. 
right? So, and of course, the, the cedar was donated. So there's a lot of donations in kind, like the logs were all donated to make that hall, right? So For I, different people on the island, different properties? Yeah, so yeah. I actually was pretty much one of the things I did is I, I sourced all the logs. So I would go to some landowner and say, would you donate a tree? And, you know, because you had to get the, th- I mean, the trees are huge, some of them. If you look at the, some go, you know, really long, they're 70 odd feet long. Uh, and they're, you know, huge diameter. And uh, we had to find straight trees. And you had to find trees that we could get out, that they could be felled without smashing them or smashing everything else. And we had to get them skidded out, right? So local guys would fall them and he'd haul them out. And they were stored in my uh, field for quite a while. And uh, then they were peeled. Unfortunately, we cut them a wee bit too late in the year. So they, the wood went moldy because of the moisture, the sap was running really hard and it was all in this brand new growth, just in the Cambrian layer. So we had to sand and sand and sand where the logs in my shop are golden colored. We just peeled them and that was it, you had to touch them. And there they all turned black. Oh wow. So we had guys, many, many volunteers with little grinders out there, hour after hour after hour, sanding the mold off to get down to a better color. Wow. And that's why the logs in the hall are kind of gray, and the ones in my place are golden, because it's the same design. It's the same building, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the, the hall is bigger, but it's the same principle of how it was constructed. Yeah, this this is all super new information to me. It kind of blows me away that there's a, a mirror image almost just less than a kilometer away through the trees yeah, from where the hall is near your yeah. barn. Well, people were using it and they said, this is all we really need. So the building committee, then we actually um, got a guy called uh, Bill Bastendorf, who's again, not with us anymore. He actually built a model on a chunk of plywood and we could lift the roof off. So we could go to these various uh, user groups like Solstice Theater, uh, Various other uh, groups, like um, the time we had girl guides on the island, for example, and let everybody have a look and see what we're thinking about and, and get input from them on what they would like to see and how we could do, do things, right? So we would make sure that we would attend these various meetings of these various groups and show off what we're trying to do, right? Did that help the process or complicate the process? It helped because if you're going to have something like this, you've got to get everybody on board. Sure, yeah. So that way, it wasn't the building committee built the hall. It was the island built the hall. Fantastic. Well, that's, that sounds like a reasonable way to go about it, right? That asking the people who are going to be using it what they'd like to see. I guess that old saying, too many cooks in the kitchen, that's what I was thinking initially, right? Uh, well, because we had something to show them. We just said, what do you want to see? I mean, Salsa Theater would want a thousand-seat theater. Right. Uh, right. You know, and if you just... But because... Okay, this is this would be your space. Yeah. Right? Are you okay with that? Yeah, right? I mean, so you actually had something to show them. Because if you left it wide open, you never get... That. That's what happened. That's why nothing happened in the previous 20 years. They did all these studies. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and we just said, let's just do it. Yeah. Right? So and then once the building was finished, it was handed over to, to Pira. 
So the, the building committee actually did, along with the rest of the island, of course. I mean, then our, our work was done. I love how you mentioned about sourcing the logs and then going to particular landowners and picking out particular trees and recognizing that that one's straight, that one can be skidded out, that one can yeah. be felled without crashing into anything. That's something I never would have thought of of being an aspect as to building the halls. Well, these are people's backyards that you're taking the trees out of, right? Yeah. Sort of, right? And yeah. Um, you know, various people would say, sure, right? So one was... Next door to me, that was forested at the time. Um, Burton Daphne Jervis donated them, one of the huge ones that's in there, and many other people. To, all the logs were donated. And um, I had told them at the time that we put a plaque on that log saying that's where it came from. But then a decision was made elsewhere that um, no one should get any credit for anything that happened in the hall, and uh, including like yellow cedar doors, the main doors on the entrance, they, they put a little initial on the bottom. And they all oh, we have to carve that off. So no one gets recognized. And then finally that all went away. But uh, someone tried to donate a piano and they wanted a plaque say it was in memory of somebody and Pierre refused it because that would mean that someone's getting recognition for donating something. And so that wasn't a very good time when that was happening, because the hall was all done, and we were we were not able to keep up with our promises that we'd made to people. Mm. But anyway, that all changed with the change of people. So now there's a great big list of everybody up on the wall that contributed to it. And if you go in there, you'll see that. It's just great big, what's about three feet, four feet square. Mm-hmm. It's just solid names. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. As that should be up there for sure. Yeah. I think that's it's nice to be recognized for contributing to things. Definitely. One thing that you mentioned the other day that I thought was really interesting as well, too, is that you said logs were actually used from the original bridge to the South Island for the uh, the hall as well, too. Yes, the uh, we had to get the trusses made to support the roof. And um, at the time, Department of Highways was completely rebuilding the South Pender Bridge. They did everything. So it was all, all new timbers. So And all the decking and everything was all new. So we actually were able to um, acquire all the old timbers. They had to be graded and cleaned up and everything else, but uh, that was all done. And um, they had to be graded because it was a, it's a structural member that it has to pass engineering requirements. So we had to get like all the steel plates. They were cut by one of my suppliers and all the holes punched in them to put the bolts through. And uh, if you go upstairs in the hall, you'll see all that exposed woodwork when that's all, all that's from the, the old bridge that's incredible that's a really nice uh yeah nice yeah. aspect of that you know yeah. like repurposing the wood from uh, the old bridge to and it's it's uh it lives on in the hall yes yeah 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 we're gonna move into uh talking about the medicine beach conservancy now but uh i just want to say thank you so much for sharing the stories about the hall i think that uh People who listen to this are going to step into the hall and uh, look at it with a bit of a different different eyes. I know I will personally. Yeah. It's, it's incredible to have some of these stories uh, documented about uh, what went into it. But talking about uh, Medicine Beach Conservancy, that was something else that you were involved with as well, too, that you mentioned earlier about having a fundraiser at your barn for that. I talked to Shelley Easthope about this uh, in a previous interview that she was intricate in this as well, too. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about that from your perspective? Well, the uh, Medicine Beach property is something in the order of 20-odd acres. And it was all owned by the Atkins family from North Vancouver. And uh, 
they owned a publishing business there. And uh, they had had the property for several decades, I guess, and uh, they decided that they weren't using it anymore and they should, they wanted to sell it, but they also wanted to see that the marsh area was preserved. So I was asked by, and they approached Island's Trust and said, you know, if we set aside the marsh, can we subdivide the rest and stuff? So I was asked to have a look at it. I can't remember if I was on the advisory planning commission at the time or not, but I was one of the founding directors of the Pender Island Conservancy, and the Conservancy was brand new. We had no projects on. We were just kind of wondering what to do. Now we've got a society, what are we going to do with it? And um, Dr. Dunn was the chair at the time. Anyway, I was asked by Bob Allison of the Islands Trust, a trustee at the time, uh, another great person who's no longer with us, if I'd have a look at it and see if I can see some way to get the subdivision happening without wrecking the place. So Jan Kirkby, and uh, who's an expert on bird life and stuff, and she's the one who identified some of the quite rare species that inhabit that marsh. And Shelley Eastop and myself went for a walk through the property, trying to decide where we could, where could you have septic fields? Where could you do this? Where could you do that? How would you get the access? And we decided, let's just trust, let's see if we can buy the whole thing. So I, um, I went to see uh, Bob Allison back and said, I think we should buy the whole thing. And if you're behind that, then we'll see what we can do. Bob was out laying rock at the time. He's in Scott, and he loved stone walls. And he said, finally, we get some good news because the trustees had been fighting a rear guard action against a bunch of development that was going on that no one liked very much, including the so-called Cantel Tower, which is a Rogers cell phone tower on the island, which was just put up without permission. It was just done. Oh, really? Yeah. They punched the road in and put the tower up, and bang, it was done. This is uh, above Row Lake? Yeah. Okay. Really? They didn't get any permission to do that? Not from the authorities. The, com- the property is now National Park, but that was owned by a, a German consortium, that whole Roll Lake property. And I guess they gave permission, mm. but there was no zoning application, no notification, no nothing. It just happened. Was that, was that a pretty big topic on the island? Oh, the- huge, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They had big meetings at the road site, and you know, was, uh, people got pretty up in the arms about it, and they... Anyways, I came to Bob Allison saying, maybe we should just buy that chunk of property. And he said, finally, we get a, something we can get behind instead of trying to fight something that's gone wrong. Nice. Right. Yeah. So I approached the Atkins family, and uh, they um, agreed. We didn't agree on a price. We just agreed on principle we're going to do this. And the, the deal I made with the Atkins family was that if we give you the same money at the end of the day, that you would have got if you'd subdivided and sold some of it. The subdivision is very expensive. You know, it probably costs, you know, probably forty, fifty thousand a lot at least, right, to subdivide that. Because you've got to prove water, you've got to prove perk and all that sort of stuff. Then you've got to have access and how are you going to organize all of that, right? What a headache. Yeah, it'd be a huge headache. So they just thought, wow, great. You know? <laughs> so that time we got, um, so the Conservancy decided to take this on. And um, needed another fundraiser. Well, that's, actually, this happened before the hall, but the fundraising chair at that time was uh, Dr. Don Williams, who still, of course, very much here on the island. Dr. Uh, Don. Yeah. So uh, he was in charge of fundraising, and um, they met uh, once a week at uh, Plum Tree Court 
looking for ideas where we could, you know, find it, raise the money. And we were fairly well advanced with everything and our planning and stuff. And um, the Atkins family decided to come out and meet us all. And so they came in float plane into Port Washington. And I met them there and we having lunch at the golf course while we're going over our financial plans and stuff like this, right? And um, um, <laughs> I can't remember Mrs. Atkins' first name. The one, it, was, it wasn't just uh, husband and wife. There was sisters and brothers associated. So they, about six of them, roughly, right? And uh, they're very lovely people and quite sharp. Uh, Mrs. Atkins is going over our figures and stuff, right? And she said, I think you're about 85,000 short. Whoa. And I said, thank you very much. She said, well, I hope you're paying for lunch then. No way. Yep. <laughs> you paid for lunch, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got the tip as well, I'm sure, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know where I got, where that came from, why I said thank you very much. I just suddenly just inspired me to do it. Yeah. And then, yep. Bold move. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So they let go of $85,000 uh, that uh, they could have got for the property. Yeah. That's that's actually really, I think it was a very important story to be told. Thanks for telling yeah. that. So the Atkins family. Yes. Okay. If you look at the, at the uh, plaque down at the Medicine Beach by the parking area there, it mentions the Atkins family, right? So. Yeah. Okay, good. That's great to know. All right, so uh, it was an $85,000 lunch, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Medicine Beach is now what it is today. It's a, uh, it's a public space. Yes, yeah. The Conservancy raised the money and bought it, but we handed over title to the um, Islands Trust Fund Board. Well, thanks for working on that. I was there. Yeah. Uh, I was having a tough day about a week ago and uh, went down to Medicine Beach and uh, it actually really shifted uh, my perspective. It was, it's a beautiful place. If, uh, yes. if anybody listening has never been to Medicine Beach before, I highly recommend you go. It's, uh, yeah. it's a pretty special little spot on the island here. I just hope to get that dead boat off there soon. Oh, yeah. That's been there for a while, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, and so uh, the next thing I just want to talk about uh, as well, too, is uh, the acquisition of Brooks Point. So for people who don't know, Brooks Point is located on the uh, south end of the South Island, and you were also involved in helping to uh, protect that area. Yeah, yeah. We were having a, one of our a conservancy meetings at my house on Hooson Road, and we just always met at different people's houses, and uh, there was a meeting there, and uh, Ellen Brooks asked if he could speak with us at that meeting he, he, he could join us so yeah and uh, he was trying to do something similar to the Atkins family is how do I they'd had the property forever how do we uh, get our money out and they, they wanted to they still wanted to preserve that thing at the time there was two Shetland ponies living on it where that's the grass was all short where it's all long now oh okay wow yeah so we we all called it a pony point which is another story altogether how the ponies got there but um, he wanted to preserve the foreshore and somehow have it in covenant. So, again, we just finished the Medicine Beach thing. So why don't we go for it? We started another fundraising campaign to acquire that, the piece that goes right out to the road right where, all the, where the footpath is now. Yep. And then um, I can't remember how that wound up. I know we had... Um, Silent auctions, um, fundraiser at the winery on Saturna Island. Again, it was a great big thing. 
you know, to get Brooks Point uh, bought per park. And uh, it, it, actually what's there now is composed of three parcels. There's the original parcel where the footpath is that goes through the forest. Then there's the chunk out where the uh, lighthouse, or not lighthouse, but the um, navigation marker is. Then the last piece that we, was acquired very recently is the one in the middle, right? And that was, um, I think the CRD actually, I'm not sure exactly how that went down, but I know this, the CRD put in a bunch, and the Conservancy had to do a bunch, right? And uh, Paul and Monica Petrie are the ones who basically put all that together, made it all happen. And um, they live just next door to the, to the original parcel. And um, one thing I'll probably mention is that um, I was my father's executor, and one of his instructions was to give a certain portion to charity or something that I would deem worthwhile part of the estate. I hadn't done that. He did a couple of things while he was still alive. So I thought, I've got this obligation, so why don't we do, by now it's my mum's estate, affairs because my my mother inherited of course all my dad's estate so we actually went down and met with monica and paul they've been raising money to buy this third chunk right for some time and uh we went down there with my mother who was at the time i guess she would have been 95 we went down there with my mom and a couple of her caregivers and we had uh we sat in Monica and Paul's little boathouse, which is right on the edge of the beach there, and uh, had a glass of wine. And then Mum handed over a very substantial check to, uh, <laughs> to Monica and Paul, and it was a huge surprise to them. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. We actually uh, managed to videotape the oh really the handing and the reaction, <laughs> just bulging eyes. Yeah, it just <laughs> it was pretty pretty funny. So I, I thought that would be a good legacy for my mom to do that. Like, right on. Uh, what was your father's first name? Leo. Leo. Yeah. Okay. And your mother's first name? Ruth. Ruth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Ruth through Leo made a substantial contribution to the uh, third parcel yes. of that yeah. being. It was actually enough to just about put it over at the top. They actually achieved their goal very shortly afterward. It's, you know, they were sort of nickel and diming trying to get the money together. And this was a big, a big boost for them. You know, it's interesting when we spoke the other day, uh, something that uh, occurred to me was wondering why you've taken on these missions. What is the reason for you wanting to preserve these spaces or build these spaces or donate these spaces? What drives you to be involved in these projects, Carl? Um, hmm. <laughs> um, I live here. My great-grandchildren live here. And my children and my grandchildren. It's a very special place. And um, if we don't make a big effort to preserve things, and fortunately the National Park has taken a big interest in Pender Island as well. Like and the, It's, it's going to be wall-to-wall houses and all chopped up. I mean, that's why we, we need, like the Islands Trust, uh, control density and land use and um, one of the reasons that I when I moved here I before I bought here actually I actually read the official community plan and the land use bylaw and uh, one thing I really liked was that the, um, the official community plan said that ferry service should be marginally inadequate 
<laughs> Seriously. Yep. <laughs> okay, that's a funny choice of words. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the idea is that not to become a bedroom community. Right. Like Salt Spring has become, right? So it just doesn't quite work. I mean, you can commute like this. Quite a few people here commute like this. Some people teach at UVic, for example. They can commute. They can make that work. But uh, <laughs> I like that. Anyway, just the more wild spaces we can protect, the better off we are, right? And the more we can let people. I mean, you go to Brooks Point, any time there's people there. In any kind of weather, you'll see, you'll see someone there if you go there for a walk. Yeah. And... Um, it's a very special place, you know, and it's um, next spot is USA. And that's one of the things that worries me is about these tankers. We're going to be passing about three, four hundred yards off the shore of Brooks Point, right? So that's, that's much more of a concern than the pipeline itself. You know, it's uh, nothing less than a special place, Brooks Point, down there. And uh, I think anybody who's down there would recognize that there's nowhere else on our island that is like that area no not even close no. you know i've seen orca whales go by there i've seen actually i was down there this summer and my wife and i showed up and we saw a circle of seven vultures standing in a circle down by the water and i thought what the heck is going on here and there was two osprey flying above and then there was an eagle flying above that and then we noticed that there was another vulture that was in the middle and it seemed as if they were taking turns eating from a kill and i thought what wildlife show did i walk into here right now it was amazing and uh and it was so spectacular to watch and uh anyway the i i love that area down there it's a it's a really special place with vultures it wouldn't be a kill be it was it was something that was found dead something was found dead yeah yeah yeah, yeah like it probably sure. washed up seal or something sure yeah i think that's we couldn't quite tell what it was but yeah. it was amazing to see seven of them yeah. all sort of standing <laughs> in a circle and yeah. each one was taking their turn at it and the uh, the osprey and the other uh, one eagle were doing their thing up above anyway it was uh yeah. well, but, it wasn't for vultures and other stuff like that we'd be about six feet deep in carrion yeah they, yeah they do a really good job okay let's hear it for the vultures right on they're such funny well, i used to you know i have sheep and once in a while like one dies or i gotta shoot one because it's some problem it can't be fixed i just put it out away from everything else and uh in two days, it's nothing but bones. Wow, that quick. Yeah. They do. That's fast work for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite a bird show when that's happening. Yeah. Between uh, the bald eagles and the vultures. Nice. Just to get back to maybe just wrap up the uh, conservancy stuff, uh, the, the latest thing that you told me you're working on is the, the affordable housing that's just in its infancy, it sounds like. But that's a major problem that this island has currently is people – Finding affordable housing. And so you said that uh, you're involved in the uh, beginning stages of uh, developing something along those lines. We're working at it. Uh, whether it takes place, I mean, uh, people from the Anglican Church have suggested that some of their 10 acres could be used for affordable housing. So I actually had a meeting this morning with Ronnie Henshaw, and uh, he's going to walk through it and see what he can see as because uh, he's got the best eye for developing real estate or property that are of anybody. I mean, he can sort of visualize and manage to do things with the least amount of destruction. And uh, we'll see. I mean, there's, there's a long way to go. We're just trying to figure out now. I mean, I made an effort a couple of years ago for seniors housing, and 
we were going to buy the property next to the driftwood. That's uh, between the driftwood and the airstrip. And um, we actually formed a society, and that was mainly for seniors because they could walk to the driftwood. I drilled three wells, but uh, they weren't considered by some others to be adequate, so the thing was dropped. So I guess that's why I got roped in this time to try and be part of the group that's um, seeing if we can get something happening in the in the church property. Okay. It's got a long way to go. There's many uh, hurdles, obstacles, things to be overcome, right? But there's a desperate need for affordable housing as well as for, for uh, more seniors housing. Plumtree Court has the zoning to build more buildings, but there's a problem with water supply to have adequate water for, for doing that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so that's something that they've got to try and get around. Um, whether we do all this together or not, I mean, we're all, you know, we know we need the housing on the island. I mean, it's difficult for a lot of people to find a place to live. It absolutely is. You use the word uh, desperate, and I think it's uh, it's getting to that point for sure. It's a it's getting to be a desperate need these days. Well, we're 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 aging here. Even though there's a lot of school kids and stuff here, which is good and great to see that. But um, you know, you you need. We need help to do a lot of things, and it's you know it's even difficult to get employees because they got nowhere to live. Yep, the grocery store has got almost a permanent help wanted ad up there, right under a door. <laughs> and I said, "Did you bring your reusable bags and help wanted?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they there's nowhere and nowhere them to live. I mean, it's it'll be a challenge. Affordable housing will be a big challenge because you got to make sure that. By and large, you're going to find that the population is somewhat transient, I expect, and you've got to make the thing almost bulletproof so you're not spending fortunes on re- repairs and things. But I, th- I think it's uh, something that has to be done, and it's certainly part of the um, uh, CRD mandate as well as the Islands Trust. Is that, you know, Affordable housing has to be ad- addressed and dealt with. Definitely. You know, the uh, the second traditional question I always get to on the podcast, which I'm going to get to now, is uh, who's helped you along the way on Pender Island? And uh, you, you've mentioned a lot of projects that you've been involved with over the years in terms of uh, helping other people on the island. But I think it'd be interesting to hear uh, who's uh, who's helped you along the way. Well, just about everybody. I mean, I, I know that <laughs> the, I mean, the various projects we've undertaken – it seems to be the same faces, like uh, Brent and Judy, uh, Deverell's, um, people like that are always seem to be stepping up to the plate for doing these projects. My own family has been very helpful. You know, my my kids, Paul and Jody, it's been great having them here. You know, and um, obviously, I made a good decision to come here because the kids are still here, <laughs> and. Uh, People like who're not here anymore. Guys who like are great help in my in my property, like um, Les Hayes, uh, Ronnie Henshaw, Doug Keating. They all run diggers, but they all were great people to work with and and got uh, helped me get stuff done. The Cravens, uh, Wilp and Lynn, you know, and, and their daughter Cindy, a very very good friend of mine. I don't know. It seems it's it's hard to single anybody out that's helped me. I've had so much help. It's hard to. <laughs> Uh, be specific, you know. 
Understandable. A lot, of, a lot of people don't feel super comfortable answering that question because they feel as if they'd be leaving a lot of people out. But, you know, it's been so amazing for me to get to hear the answer to that question. I'm sure people who listen to these podcasts regularly are going to be bored to hear this part again. But it's really blown me away to hear one person after another come in this room and say, so many people have helped me along the way. Wow, I don't even, I, I, where do I even start, you know? And I didn't know that was going to be the answer I was going to be receiving when I first started doing this and first yeah. asked people but it's remarkable it's remarkable it's actually made me appreciate the island so much more because it's a it's a hidden component that doesn't get talked about but i think now it is getting talked about a little bit more because people are hearing just how much help exists on this island it's a pretty wonderful thing well it's one of the beauties of a small community in that you know if you live in a city you will know one-tenth as many people as you would living in a small place. Mm. I mean, and even though there's so many people there. I mean, you can be living in an apartment house on Jervis Street, like my wife Hetty did, you know, on the eighth floor. Lived there for several years, didn't know the people on either side of her. Didn't know what they did, what their names were, and like that sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You knew the faces. You bump into them in the elevator. But that was about it. So you knew the people you worked with, but uh, and then you have one or two other friends. But here, it's, you know, you can't walk through the, uh, the driftwood without saying hi to ten people, right? Yeah. Like, How are you? And whatever, right? So that's one of the real joys of this place. Absolutely. You know, getting back to what you said earlier when you said that you were making transitions to smaller and smaller companies because you felt as if you were seen and recognized more for a person rather than a number. I get, the same thing applies to living where you live. Absolutely. I mean, I've gone from, you know, Vancouver, you know, New Zealand, that was great. And then back to Edmonton, Calgary, Abbotsford, you know, moving to smaller and smaller communities. And that's why this is this is home. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's funny when we were speaking the other day, you mentioned about uh, how much this place reminded you of New Zealand, how much Pender reminded you of New Zealand. That was part of your reason for wanting to permanently move here. Yes. And I, I, I never made that correlation, actually. Maybe briefly in the back of my mind, but we were standing on your property, which is right near the community hall when you said that. And I was like, yeah, this does, this does remind me of New Zealand here. Well, and, it's green, you know, and uh, it's incredibly friendly safe right all those good things about it are, are here right and uh one of the things that makes this place special as well is that everybody's here because of choice they've made a conscious decision to be here when you get to somewhere like in surrey or vancouver or anywhere any big place most people are trying to get out of it they're getting by but they're there because they got, they landed there sure yeah and that's where they got to work. That's where their job is. So they can't, you know, they don't have a choice. But almost every single person here is here. They made a conscious decision to live in this place. So it's it's their choice, which is why you get, you don't see vandalism here, you know, or very, very rarely you see something, right? Because everybody everybody who lives here cherishes it. Yeah, I feel that way as well, too. And for people who have never lived on a small island or you know, visited a pender who are potentially listening to this, it, it's interesting because there's no drive-through traffic. Is that you have to pay money to get onto a ferry and go through a bit of a yeah. hassle to get here. and it Marginally inadequate. 
<laughs> still, still marginally in- inadequate to this day. Yeah, yes. definitely. And it creates a totally different feeling in our particular community because it's not as if you're living right in a small community right off the Trans-Canada Highway. Yeah. Where things are different. Right. That uh, people people are driving through and everything. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great feeling on this island. Well, just as you get on the ferry, everything starts to shed, Right. You know, I mean, you got the nervousness of getting to the bloody terminal on time. Are we going to make the boat and all this sort of stuff? And don't speed. There's probably cops everywhere. And then you kind of ah, 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 take a deep breath. Totally. And it's, it's actually nice. It's nice to have visitors come because uh, I, th- I think we easily forget some of the nice calming features that this place yeah. has. And then you can see within uh, guests that you have in your home and, and they start to relax more and they talk about, oh, my gosh, it's so green here. It's so there's so much nature. It's so nice. I feel so relaxed. And you're like, oh, all right. This is just my yeah. average of my daily life. I forgot about this. Right. I never take it for granted. I appreciate it all the time. I never take it for granted. I never forget or stop feeling so lucky to have wound up here. Nice. Nice. Well, I think we're going to uh, close it off here for people who are listening to this. We, uh, we went deep. Normally this is an hour that I do these for, but uh, when I was uh, first talking to Carl about doing this, I said, we're, we're going to have to go for an hour and a half and we've gone past an hour and a half because this has been so enjoyable but uh, I'm going to leave the last word to you Carl if there's uh, anything you want to say to finish this off uh, the uh, the mic is yours um, no I just I just said I just feel incredibly fortunate to live in a place like this and um, obviously my family does as well so thanks for talking to me All right. Well, I want to thank Carl so much for doing that interview with me. I learned so much about the island and pieces of recent history that I'd never heard of before. And to honor that interview, I decided I would come to the community hall. Of course, the community hall is located on Bedwell Harbor Road. And if you're coming off the ferry, you can't miss it. It's uh, at a T intersection with a stop sign. It's a large barn shaped building of course like carl described green roof and currently i am sitting off to the side of it away from the road and just found my way over to a bench that has a lovely inscription saying in loving memory of sandy and edith pearson pender lovers now when i saw this bench here today when i decided to come sit down it made me realize i don't know who either of those people are and there's so much about this island that i don't know and i'm really curious to find out more so if you're curious to find out more please continue along for the ride with me and i'll do my best to make some wonderful discoveries so once again thank you to carl also thank you to ptarmigan arts society for helping to sponsor this podcast and thank you for listening until next time